Chapter 18 then begins with this amazement spreading. But notice specifically what they're amazed by. After they've stood forth and testified of these things in verse 1, in verse 2, when the king, his name was Lamoni, when King Lamoni had heard these things, when he had learned of the faithfulness of Ammon in preserving his flocks, oh, and also of his great power in contending against those who sought to slay him. You see the order there? I think to us, what would most amaze us, what impresses us most about this story is the fact that Ammon was chopping off arms, right? You got this heap of severed limbs at the feet of King Lamoni. But that's not what is striking him, at least not first. What amazes him first is the faithfulness of Ammon in preserving the flocks. I've never had a servant like this. And I've had a lot of servants. We go through them pretty quickly around here. But you cared enough about the sheep. In fact, you cared enough about me, since those were my sheep, that you did something about it. Your faithfulness amazes me. Yeah, you're surprisingly buff too. I mean, I've got the arms to prove it, but your faithfulness. We'll see this a few pages from now when King Lamoni's father has a similar experience. And what amazes him is not Ammon's strength, but rather the generosity and goodness of this Nephite man. There's a similar story in the book of Acts where this false prophet, this sorcerer named Elymas, is confronted by Paul who strikes him blind. That would be pretty amazing too, right? And yet in that story, Acts chapter 13, it says that the people are amazed at Paul's doctrine. Not his power to blind someone, rather his power to bring sight to the blind through the doctrine that he teaches. That's fascinating to me. What is it that amazes us most? It's doctrine, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's generosity. It's Christ-like attributes. That's what's going to soften hearts and change people. 18.3, there's a hint of that from the servants themselves. Yeah, we don't know about his strength. Maybe he's the great spirit, maybe he's not. I don't know. But this much we do know. He can't be slain by the enemies of the king. They can't scatter the king's flocks when he's with us. Now, yes, his great strength they note, but also they note his expertness. There's something else about this guy. And then this even better phrase, we know he is a friend to the king. Once again, there's the generosity. There's the faithfulness. There's the goodness of this man. A friend of the king. As we work to share the gospel with people who need it, or to help wandering sheep back into the fold, don't worry so much about your lack of strength, or even your expertness. Some of those things might help. But when people truly know we are their friends, they tend to be more willing to listen. So aim for friendship over any kind of show of force. Now they keep talking back and forth about the Great Spirit, which was their tradition. You also catch this in verse 5 about that tradition. They did believe in a Great Spirit. They were theists. They believed in God. However, they supposed that whatsoever they did was right. Sound like anyone else we've met so far? That's what Zeezrom taught. It's what Nehor taught. We'll see later in these chapters today the influence of the doctrine, the order, the faith, the profession of Nehor among the Lamanites. Amulon and the wicked priests of Noah that he was a part of were teaching the same thing. So it's the Amulonites and the Amalekites, Nephite dissenters, that bring these false doctrines in among the Lamanites. 
That's this easy universalism that, that all roads lead to Rome and that we'll be saved in spite of the fact that we haven't repented of any sins. Or better yet, there's no sins to repent of. It doesn't matter. What you do is right. Who cares? There's nothing to fear. But now, all of a sudden, Lamoni does begin to fear. He fears exceedingly, lest he had done wrong in slaying his servants. Here is this reawakening of conscience. It's one thing to believe in God. I'm glad they did. But if there's a belief that God doesn't care how we live, then even our belief in God isn't going to motivate us to do much. This is what C.S. Lewis described as the heavenly grandfather idea, where his biggest hope is that a good time is had by all. Spoil them and send them home. It doesn't really matter. I actually had a student once years ago that came to talk to me and he said, you know, I used to be an atheist, but I'm not anymore. But I have some questions about the church. Now I said, wait, wait, you used to be an atheist, you're not. I know there's a story here. And he proceeded to share some amazing things with me. But I said, before we get to the church, there's a couple of, there's at least a preliminary step before we get there. If I try to answer all your questions about church history or doctrine without your foundation of a belief in God, then we're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It doesn't really matter, right? If there's no God, then who cares about anything about the church? But I'm glad that you took that first step. Now I was thinking, your second step is Jesus Christ. To go, you need to know that there's a God, but second, you need to know that Jesus is the Christ. And once you know that, then we can start talking about the church of Jesus Christ, Christ's vehicle to bring us back to the Father. But as I was about to say that, I felt held back with this, no, 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 Brother Halverson, don't go that fast. You thought he was going too fast by jumping from God to the church. Well, you're still going too fast, jumping from the Father to the Son. And I thought, what's in between the Father and the Son? And I felt sin. Why does the Father need the Son to work out the perfect atonement if there's no sin that's separating us from God in the first place? So teach sin. And so that's what I said to this young man. Now that you know that God is real, the next step you need to take is find out, does he care how you live? Is there such a thing as sin? Because if there is, then God better have a solution for sin to help us get back to him. And there's lots of religions out there that describe different possible solutions, Christianity being one of them. Then you can find out if Jesus is the Christ. Once you know sin is a reality, then you can start figuring out if Christ is God's solution for the problem of sin. That's what Lamoni is starting to realize. I've always believed in a God or a great spirit, but now I'm starting to rethink, does God care how I live? Indeed, he does. I'm starting to feel that troubled conscience, which is now preparing me for the next lesson I need to receive. Well, how do I get over that? How do I work through that? If God is there and cares how I live, what on earth can I do if I haven't done what God has commanded? Well, the king wants to know more. So in verse 8, he asks his servants, where is this guy that has such great power? And they say, he's feeding your horses. Now again, this blows away King Lamoni. He had told his servants, as soon as you're done with the sheep, then move on to the horses. Get the chariots ready. I've got to go see my dad. In verse 10, when King Lamoni finds out that that's exactly what Ammon is doing, he's not resting on his laurels and patting himself on the back or even following the servants in to gloat on the pile of limbs that's there at his feet. It's like, no, I finished one job. Now I'm on to the next. Now King Lamoni is more astonished because of the faithfulness of Ammon. That's what he said back in verse 2, right? When he learned of the faithfulness of Ammon, he was astonished exceedingly. Now he's even more astonished 
because that faithfulness is even deeper than he realized. I've never seen another servant like it. He remembers all my commandments to execute them. This must be the great spirit, he concludes in verse 11. And I want him to come in to talk to me. I just, I just can't bring myself to ask. That is an interesting insight to me. That here's someone that wants more than anything to talk with Ammon, to find out what it, who he is and what's, how does he have this power and such faithfulness. But I just I can't bring myself to do it. He knows there's something different about this person. But who am I to broach the subject? If you're a lifelong member of the church, we typically have the opposite problem. We're the ones that are afraid to broach the subject. Well, how will they react? What would their response be? I wonder how we would act if we assumed that the other party was feeling similar. Oh, there's something different about this friend of mine, this coworker, this colleague. I, I wish I could ask. I just don't want to pry into other people's business. That's what I love about Clayton Christensen, who said in almost every conversation he had, he would try to open the door. Not force anybody through it, but just let people know, I'm comfortable having these kinds of conversations. So if you want to ask, please do. Well, Ammon comes in, not because he's been sent for. He's just finished his second duty for the day, and he's probably coming back to find out what's next on the list. He sees in 12 that the countenance of the king has changed, and he's about to leave. Now, it's interesting that Ammon, as great a missionary he was, he reads the situation incorrectly here. And that gives me hope because I read missionary opportunities and situations wrong all the time. He's about to leave. He's going to miss out on this. But thankfully, one of the king's servants speaks up and says, can you stay? The, the king really wants you here. It, doesn't, it may not seem like it. You, you read the facial expression and assumed it was, this is not a good opportunity for me to share the gospel. Actually, it's the perfect opportunity. So give it a chance. And so Ammon asks him in 14, what can I do for you, king? and waits an hour for an answer. Remember the Lord told them to be patient and long-suffering? I don't know if that's what he had in mind. But sure enough, he waits for this hour and asks again in 15, What desirest thou of me? Maybe there is a lesson in there after all. It often does take time for a person to open up, even when they want what you have, or at least want to ask about it. So often we're like, oh, you, are you interested? You want to t talk about things? And there's no response immediately. And so we, we bail. So often we're so impatient in our missionary labors. Even if we muster the courage to ask if someone's interested, if they have any questions, want to learn more, we don't often wait for the response. There's an awkward silence. There's this uh, discomfort on our part or on theirs. And again, we read the situation wrong. We give up early. Ammon didn't. He let the time pass. He followed up. Sometimes an answer of no or no answer at all at one point can become an answer of yes later on. The king still doesn't answer that second question, verse 15. But in 16, Ammon is filled with the Spirit of God and begins to perceive the king's thoughts. Is it because of what I did to those wicked Lamanites? Is this what causes your marvelings? Because if it is, verse 17, please know that I'm just an ordinary human being like everybody else. I'm one of your servants. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. It's amazing that with the Spirit, he goes from being wrong in 12 to being patient in 14 and 15 to being truly inspired 
in 16 and 17. Asking questions and sharing insights that are exactly what King Lamoni needs to hear, which again causes Lamoni to marvel in 18, finally leading him to ask, Who art thou? Art thou that great spirit who knows all things? And Ammon again reiterates, No, I'm not. I'm just a man. Then how do you know what I'm thinking? You can speak boldly, Lamoni says. Seems like Ammon has been holding back all this time from the very first meeting. No, I just want to serve you. Actually, I really want to teach and baptize you. But no, I'm here just to serve. But now it's, he's ready. Speak boldly, he's told. And if you do, verse 21, if you tell me about what's been happening, whatever you desire, I will give unto thee. I'd guard you with my armies if you needed that, but I know you don't. But what do you want? I'll give it to you. 22, Ammon is wise yet harmless. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves is what Jesus told his apostles they would need to be to share the gospel to a wicked world. Ammon's only request to Lamoni, will you just listen? That's what I want. In other words, what you want, really, is exactly what I want. I want to meet your desires. That's mine. And the king does him one better. Ammon just asks that he will listen. 23, Lamoni says, I will believe. Based on everything I've seen about you, heard about you, how could I not? More than listen, I will believe. So 24, Ammon speaks with boldness as he was invited and starts from scratch. The base layer, the foundation, bedrock layer of testimony. Do you believe in a God? I don't even know what that means, 25. Well, what about the great spirit? Yes, well, that's God. Let's build on common beliefs. We might call it by different names. That's so much of missionary work is becoming bilingual. I don't just mean learning the native language of the people that you're teaching in terms of Spanish or French or German or whatever. It's more a matter of how do you describe your spiritual experiences? Let me try to speak your language. I had a great conversation with an evangelical pastor that works with evangelical Christians at the University of Utah. And we sat down for lunch together and he said, you know, I really am grateful for your willingness to speak with me because I know you know enough about my religion that you can speak evangelicalese, but I don't yet know enough about your religion to speak Mormonese. And he asked me to help him become bilingual so that he could associate with Latter-day Saint young adults in this area and so that he could help the members of his church relate to and communicate with Latter-day Saint young adults as well. Well, where does Ammon want to take this discussion? Verse 28, let's start with the creation. Now that you believe in God, this is the great spirit who created all things in heaven and in earth. Lamoni believes in that, at least the earth part. That's what I, I can see. I don't know anything about the heavens, what I can't see. Ammon explains it a little bit, and Lamoni wants to keep going down that path. Well, where is heaven? Ammon responds in 32, well, yes, it's in above the earth. God looks down upon the children of men, and he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want to get back to the lesson I need to be teaching you. Let's not get lost in the weeds and talk about the location of heaven. Let's talk about the condition of the heart, that conscience that was starting to get awakened in you back in verse 5. God does know the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know there's a God. Are you starting to sense that there is sin? He knows our thoughts because he's created us from the beginning. He was trying to get to creation in 28 until he got sidetracked a little bit with his talk of heaven. We're back to creation in 32. Lamoni then says, okay, great. So far, so good. I believe all that you've said. Are you sent from God? And it says, well, I'm a man. 
But back to my subject, and man in the beginning was created after the image of God. I love this. It's like conversational tug of war. If you've ever tried to do missionary work, you know how this is. This is what I want to teach. I have a question. Oh, we'll talk about that. And see how it leads into this? And then, oh, what about this? And these tangents keep returning. He keeps pulling it back to creation. This is the third time. We were created after the image of God. I'm called by his Holy Spirit to teach these things unto this people, that they may be brought to a knowledge of that which is just and true. A portion of that spirit dwelleth in me. It's what gives me knowledge. It's what gives me power according to the faith and desires which I have that are in God. Remember the servants? It's his expertness and power. Here's Ammon. Oh, those things come from God just because I have faith and desires in him. 36. Now when Ammon had said these words, he began, where else? At the creation. He's been trying to start this lesson for the last five or six verses. Creation. No, heaven. No, no, no. Creation. Well, are you from God? Yes, but creation. Where does your power come from? Can we talk about the creation for a second? He began at the creation of the world. Also the creation of Adam. Told him all the things concerning the fall of man. See where we're going? From God to sin to Christ. Or from creation to fall to atonement. The three pillars of eternity that Elder McConkie always talked about. Now he opens the scriptures. This is going to be my source. I'm not just making this up off the top of my head. But he goes through their own history. From the time Lehi left Jerusalem... So we're going to have to unlearn a few things to prepare you to learn a few things. And the perspective you have on us Nephites is flawed. That's why Joseph Smith wrote Joseph Smith History, to disabuse the public mind. Sometimes the mind has been abused with certain base traditions like we saw earlier in chapter 17. So let me unwind the knot a little bit. Untangle things. Disabuse the public mind. So then I can present you with an understanding of the truth. He rehearses unto him all the journeyings of their fathers, their sufferings in the wilderness, the rebellions of Laman and Lemuel, and the sons of Ishmael. Now, King Lamoni is an Ishmaelite, so this might have been something hard for him to hear. The rebellions of his ancestors. But he expounded all these things from the records and scriptures that they had. But he doesn't stop there. We've got creation. We have fall. And not just Adam's, your own This isn't just human depravity in general that we're discussing. We're talking about mistakes that we have made. How did we get to this place? Rebellions of the Lamanites, creation, fall, and personal fall. In need of what? Verse 39, he expounded unto them the plan of redemption. Prepared from the foundation of the world. Even before that creation occurred or that fall took place, the plan of redemption was prepared. That's how we come home. There is a God. There is sin. But there is a Christ. And his redemption is God's solution to the problem of sin. He makes known unto King Lamoni the coming of Christ, all the works of the Lord. And in verse 40, With this explanation, the king believes everything. More than just believe, he acts on it, which is the purpose of every missionary invitation, to help move feelings into faith, which is an active principle. To go from hearken to the word, to believe on the word, to act upon the word, which is what he does. 41, Lamoni begins to cry unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, have mercy. You see what he's laid a hold of? I know there is a God. It's that great spirit I was raised to believe in. 
but he does care how I live and I have not lived well. Well, if this was part of the plan from the beginning, that God created humanity and that Adam and Eve fell, but that God sent his son and that redemption through Christ is a guaranteed part of the plan from before the very beginning of it all, it was all meant to happen this way, then there is hope for me because there is mercy for me. O Lord, have mercy according to thy abundant mercy, which thou hast had upon the people of Nephi, have upon me and my people. I do see a difference here. I see, we'll see this in a later chapter. I see that the Nephites, somehow they seem to be treated by God differently than we do. There is a difference. What is it about them? Well, now he knows it's because of the mercy of God. They're not just categorically better than we are. It's that they place their faith and desires in God and that he is merciful to them. They repent and are forgiven. The creation happened to us all. He created all men, he said, right? The fall has come upon all men, Nephite and Lamanite alike. It's the redemption, though, that has been changing Nephites all along and can change Lamanites too, if we'll let it, if we'll ask for it. Well, I'm asking for it. And because he did, verse 42, he falls to the earth as if he's dead. This is the death of the natural man within him. And he lies there for the space of two days and two nights. Sound familiar from Alma's experience? Which again, beautifully, means he will rise the third day, just as Alma did. We see that happen in chapter 19. And in this chapter, we get to meet one of the most magnificent women of Scripture, the Book of Mormon, sadly, does not give us as many as the Old or New Testaments do. But here we meet one who is wonderful. We never learn her name. This is Lamoni's wife, Lamoni's queen. I wish we knew her name. God does. But after two days and two nights, I've seen what seems to be the dead body of her husband. Verse 2, by then she has heard of the fame of Ammon. I don't know if he's now more famous for his power or his faithfulness, his strength or his expertness. Either way, she sends and desires that he should come in unto her. She's being proactive here, far more than her husband was, which I think is interesting. Ammon does as commanded, asks what she wants. And she says in verse 4, The servants of my husband have made it known unto me that thou art a prophet of a holy God. Now these are indefinite articles a instead of the. This is not you are the prophet of the holy God. You're a prophet of a holy God. I don't really know you. I don't really know who you're serving. Same problem her husband had had. But there's still an openness of faith even in the unknown. What she does know is that you have power to do many mighty works in the name of whatever God you happen to be serving. So her request, and again, I love her initiative that she is so proactive even when her husband had not been. I would that you should go in and see my husband, for he's been laid upon his bed for the space of two days and two nights. Some say he isn't dead, but others say he is, and that he stinketh, and that we ought to bury him already. And then one of my favorite lines, But as for myself, to me he doth not stink. I really hope that my wife feels that way about me, in spite of what everyone else might think. To me, I'm glad I made the choice. To me, he doth not stink. By the way, this is so much more than a wife-to-husband kind of a principle. Too often I've seen 
Every time I've taught the women in scripture class at Institute, I see people get this sense of, oh, we're going to learn about righteous womanhood. We're going to learn how to be righteous wives and mothers and daughters and sisters from these righteous women. And I always say, no, 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 don't limit their lessons. You are here to learn how to be a righteous disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not that we're learning about women. We're learning from women. Their message is meant for all of us. So this is not just a story about, oh, wives ought to respect their husbands. Women ought to defend men against charges of stinkiness. No, that is so myopic compared to the lessons that could be learned here. Here is a disciple of Jesus Christ who sees someone that everyone assumes is dead. It's too late. It's past feeling. This is the servants of the king before with their flocks. It's over. They're scattered already. It's hopeless. And yet she has not lost hope. Can we see past people's rough exterior? Can we see past what looks like spiritual death in others and say, that person is completely acceptable to me. I want them here, sitting next to me in the chapel. They don't smell bad at all. Again, take it literally. Oh, that smells, smells like smoke. Ah, no, that is the sweet scent of repentance right here in the church. I haven't smelled something this good in a long time. Please don't think that it stinks. This is change taking place. Hope for us all. Now, this is exactly what Ammon desires. He knows in verse 6 that King Lamoni was under the power of God, that the dark veil of unbelief was being cast away from his mind. Like I said, it's the natural man that is dying here. The light which is lighting up his mind. This is the light of the glory of God. It is a marvelous light of his goodness. This light is infusing joy into his soul. The cloud of darkness is being dispelled. And the light of everlasting life is lighting up his soul. This is what overcame his natural frame. It's what overcame his natural man. He was carried away in God. So do not carry him away to the grave. Queen, you are so correct. There is nothing stinky about this circumstance. What you desire, verse 7, is the only thing I desire. Talk about a righteous disciple. When there's no dissonance between what you want and what God wants, or between what you want and what the prophet wants. So he goes in to see the king just as the queen had asked. And he knows, nope, he's not dead. The queen was right all along. So he tells her, he's not dead. He sleepeth in God. And on the morrow he shall rise again. So don't bury him. And then he asks an interesting question. I think sometimes we're too afraid to ask this one. We'll, if we get the guts, if we muster the courage to share the gospel, we think that's it. But to have the courage to actually probe a little bit. What's your impression of this? Missionaries tend to have the courage to do it. Here Ammon does. Believest thou this, he asks? Because if you don't, I want to explain it better. I want to testify again. Have I done a good enough job of explaining this? I remember saying that to a woman on my mission. We had just taught the Joseph Smith story. And we had the guts afterwards to ask. Believest thou this? That's not exactly how we said it, but that's how Ammon did. And she very honestly, simply said, no, I I, I don't. We didn't give up. We simply taught again, tried to understand how she felt and what she understood or didn't understand. 
tried to answer her questions, resolve her concerns. Finally, at the end of the conversation, we said, you know, the things of God can only be known by the Spirit of God. And maybe all we've been doing is trying to explain with logic and reason what happened. Can we give the Spirit a chance to testify of these things? Can we sing something to you? And she was kind of taken aback. Now, at the time, I had a companion with a great voice. And we simply sang to her Joseph Smith's first prayer. And the Spirit of God flowed into that room through the spirit of that song. And at the end of it, when we again asked in our own way, Believest thou this? She said she did. I think sometimes we're so eager to tell or so anxious to get the word out that we don't have the courage or the faith or the patience to listen, to be open to even disbelief so that we can help people move towards belief. What do you think about these things? What do you feel about these things? Do you believe these things? Well, her response is incredible. She says, I have had no witness save thy word and the word of our servants. I haven't seen a thing. I have no evidence other than hearsay, or a better word, testimony. You know, sometimes we give Thomas a bad rap because doubting Thomas is one, no, no, until I know for myself, I'm not going to believe the testimony of others. Well, why do we single him out? All the apostles were that way. There was doubting Peter and doubting James and doubting John and doubting... They were all doubters. The women had already come and told them, he's risen. But they couldn't believe until they had known for themselves. You know, there's only one exception to that. And that's those women themselves that first came to the tomb. They had not yet seen Jesus, though they soon would. But they did believe the angel's words. I will accept the testimony of others until I receive a more tangible testimony of my own. It was the women at the tomb that gave the best example of that. The Book of Mormon version of that would be Lamoni's wife. I haven't had any witness except your witnesses. I don't know for myself yet. But since you know for yourself, I do believe your words. That's DNC section 5. Martin Harris, knowing for yourself tangibly with the plates will be insufficient until you have come to trust the testimony of my servant Joseph. Believe and then see. Trust in testimony and you will have the humility that will open your heart to receive one of your own. I love this woman for that. I don't know for myself. Nevertheless, I believe. Verse 10, Ammon is amazed by her as well. Blessed art thou because of thy exceeding faith. I haven't seen this much even back home among lifelong members. I love that Ammon is open to the faith of someone that does not yet share his own faith. Jesus was the same way. Congratulating outsiders whose faith often surpassed that of insiders. Well, from that moment on, verse 11, she watches over the bed of her husband. From that time, even until the time on the morrow that Ammon had appointed that he should rise. That's discipleship. That's shepherding. That's keeping watch over their flocks by night. That's searching for the one in the mountains until you find them and then bringing that lost sheep home on your shoulders rejoicing. Don't give up. 
search for them, head them off, bring them back to the place of water. The next day, as promised, he arose. And what does Lamoni do first? In verse 12, the first thing he does after coming to himself, he stretches forth his hand unto her and says, Blessed be the name of God, and blessed art thou. Now, what does she have to do with this? 13, I think, answers the question. As sure as thou livest, Lamoni continues, behold, I have seen my Redeemer. That's the blessed be the name of God part. He shall come forth and be born of a woman. I think that's what explains the blessed art thou part. He says, he shall redeem all mankind who believe on his name. That's the atonement. But he precedes the atonement with the incarnation. Just like Alma did in Alma 7. Just like King Benjamin did in Mosiah 3. He precedes Easter with Christmas. That the Son of God who atones would come to earth through his mortal mother. I just think it's Lamoni's experience understanding Mary's role that opens his eyes more clearly to see his own wife's role in nurturing faith, in raising the sons and daughters of God, in building testimony and faith in all the people around them. She will do just that in a moment to any male out there that needs to hear it. I think a better understanding of God could and should and must lead to a better appreciation of women as the vessel through whom so much of divinity comes. Once Lamoni says these words, his heart is swollen within him. Remember that phrase was used just a couple chapters ago when Ammon's heart began to swell with joy when he saw his missionary opportunity unfold among his fellow servants? Well, here, King Lamoni's heart is swelling within him. He sinks again with joy. The queen joins him this time sinks down being overpowered by the Spirit. Ammon sees the Spirit poured out according to his prayers. It's what he's been asking for all along. Upon the Lamanites, his brethren, those who have been the cause of so much mourning, not hatred, but mourning, sorrow, not ill will. Well, now that sorrow is turning to joy. And he falls upon his knees. He pours out his soul in prayer and thanksgiving to God. He'd already poured it out in desire. Now he's pouring it out in thanksgiving. I sometimes wonder, are my prayers of gratitude as intense as my prayers of pleading? If I fast to show how desperately I need a blessing, do I then fast to show how sincerely I am grateful that the blessing came? Here's Ammon pouring out his heart with gratitude for what God had done for his brethren. He too is overpowered with joy, and all three are now sunk to the earth. The servants see it in 15 and are afraid of what they're beholding. But they call on the name of the Lord in 16 and then fall to the earth as well. There's a whole lot of fainting going on, right? Except with one, this wonderful Lamanitish woman. Lamanitish, not sure exactly what that means. She's in them, but not of them, perhaps. She's a Lamanite, but she's different. There's something about her. Yeah, she's a Lamanite, but she's Lamanite-ish. Looks like us, but doesn't quite act like us. This time we do learn her name, Abish. She had been converted unto the Lord for many years. So no wonder she's different. 
And notice what converted her? On account of a remarkable vision of her father, not her own. This is the second time in this chapter that a woman has had the faith in someone else to believe in another's testimony in anticipation of gaining one of her own. 17 says she was converted to the Lord, but she never made it known. That also speaks volumes of her. Reminds me of Esther from the Old Testament, who at first withholds her true identity and then lets people know. Abish does the same. But I wonder sometimes, where is Father through all of this? Has he already passed on? How has she maintained her faith? In the absence of visions of her own, and in the absence of the person who originally had them. This is a strong convert that can stand independent of other witnesses, having already been touched by those testimonies. Saintliness in solitude is an incredible thing, and she's mastered it. Now, she sees a missionary opportunity when it presents itself. In 17, she sees all of these prostrate bodies and knows it's the power of God. She reads the situation correctly. Supposing that this opportunity, she sought for what it was, by making known unto the people what had happened among them, by beholding this scene, it would cause them to believe in the power of God. So what she do? She runs from house to house, making it known unto the people. This is a great missionary endeavor. They began to assemble themselves together into the house of the king. A multitude comes. But what do they see? They haven't had her experience, so they don't see through her eyes and they don't read the situation as she had. They start to murmur among themselves. They say, what's going on? This is great evil among them. The king never should have let the Nephite remain in the land. Interesting that that's what they call him in verse 19, the Nephite. Now others in 20 say, no, 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 there was evil done in the land, but it wasn't letting the Nephite in. It was slaying all those servants whose flocks were scattered. Remember we saw earlier, oh, yeah, there's a great spirit, but you can do whatever you want. He doesn't care. Well, there is a conscience in the people that can't completely be covered up, pasted over by promises of easy exaltation. They know that something was wrong with that, as Lamoni himself had discovered. Now, it just so happened that one of the people there was related to one of the people that Ammon had slain as he protected the flocks. And he's angry understandably. 22, he comes forth to draw his sword to kill Ammon. Talk about a sitting duck. He's laid out cold. But as soon as this man lifts the sword, he falls dead, not his intended victim. Verse 23, Mormon points out, that's exactly what we should have expected. We see that Ammon can't be slain. The Lord had promised his father to protect him. And that's exactly what happened. According to Mosiah's faith, and Mosiah's trust in the Lord. Well, with this latest fall, for completely different reasons than the fall of the previous people, the people are more astonished and fearful than ever. 25, there are many who say that Ammon was the great spirit. That seems to be the common conclusion. Others say he was sent by the spirit. 26, others say that he's a monster sent by the Nephites to torment them. And then 27, this fascinating possibility. Others said that Ammon must have been sent by the great spirit to afflict them because of their iniquities. Again, there's that conscience at work. But it was the great spirit that had always attended the Nephites who had ever delivered them out of their hands. See, that's amazing to me. 
that these Lamanites, again, they recognize there's something different about the Nephites. They're not as strong as we are. They're certainly not as numerous as we are. Then why do they keep winning? Why do they keep pushing us back? Why do they keep defeating us in war? It can't just be them. There must be something greater. And they were right about that. There is some great spirit out there that accompanies them that does not accompany us. Why is that? It's questions like that that prepare you for amazing answers. Well, their contention in 28 is sharp. And so Abish, who sees all of this and had hoped for a different outcome, is sorrowful to the point of tears. This is the missionary opportunity I've waited my whole life for, and it's not going the way I had hoped. Hope that I had kept bottled up somehow, preserved through all these years. I finally have the courage to open the lid, and this is what happens? Well, don't lose hope yet. God is still in charge. He wants us to act in courage, even when hope looks bleak. And so Abish does. She takes the queen by the hand, woman to woman, raises her from the ground. As soon as she touches the queen's hand, the queen arises, stands on her feet, and cries with a loud voice. And what does she say? Just as her husband said, Blessed be God, and blessed art thou. First great commandment, love God. Second great commandment, love others. She does the same. First statement, O blessed Jesus, who has saved me from an awful hell. She obviously had a sensitive conscience as well. She had known of God, had come to grapple with her own sin, but came to see Jesus as God's solution to that problem. Blessed Jesus, who saved me from an awful hell, and then thinking of others. O blessed God, have mercy on this people. You first look upward and then quickly look outward. When she had said this, she clasped her hands, being filled with joy, speaking many words which were not understood. That's okay. We understood the words that mattered. She then takes the king by the hand, and he arises and stands upon his feet. That's always what we want to do when someone has lifted us. We want to lift others. He then, in his role as king, sees their contention and rebukes them. But not just to chastise, to calm them to the point of being able to teach them what he had learned from Ammon. And as many as hear his words, believe and are converted unto the Lord. You see, he finally has the answer to the question they were wondering back in 27. What makes Nephites different? Well, let me tell you. It's the mercy of God. It's the redemption that comes through His Son. It's the plan of salvation, creation, fall, atonement. God, sin, Jesus. It's all here. Now, there were others there. Within earshot, but not willing to hear. 32. Many among them who would not hear His words. And so they go their way. But those that stay, Ammon administers to them, joined by the servants of Lamoni. Great team they've become. He did win their hearts when he defended them. He did win their hearts when he taught them how to gather. 
and now they're joining him. I'll join you in your service, and someday you'll join me in mine. All of them declare together the selfsame thing, that their hearts have been changed. No more desire to do evil. Sound like King Benjamin's people? We've experienced a mighty change of heart. We have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. It's exactly what's happening here. They declare that they'd seen angels. They'd conversed with them. They told them things of God and of righteousness. And as many as believe are baptized and become a righteous people. And they establish a church among them. That's how the work of the Lord commenced among the Lamanites. The Lord poured out his spirit upon them. What's Mormon's takeaway? We see that his arm is extended to all people who repent and believe on his name. Even the wild, hardened, and ferocious. Even Lamanites. Even you. Even me. No wonder Mormon hasn't yet given up on his wicked Nephite compatriots in his time period, 400 A.D., because he's reading stories like this one. If they'll just repent and believe, God's arm of mercy is extended to everyone.